thus far, in Matthew 1 and 2, Matthew has set forth the Messiah's chronicle, confirmation, and certification. Each has been built around specific messianic prophecies. Now, in studying these prophecies, it is essential to remember that they were given primarily to Jewish people living in the Middle East several millennia ago. As such, modern expositors or students of the Bible that we are, we must strive to understand the sacred text from the perspective of the original writers and readers. That said, it must be underscored that Matthew, as a Jew, writing to Jews, employs several exegetical or biblical interpretation methods commonly found in rabbinic writings. Primarily, rabbinic interpretation includes four methods referred to as pardes, P-R-D-S, or P-A-R-D-E-S. Pardes is a Hebrew term for garden, and it serves as an anagram created from the first letters of the four interpretive methods, the p Peshat, the R, Remez, the D or D, Dearth, and the S or S from Sad. Peshet, Remez, Dearth, Sad, Pardes. Peshet, meaning simple, refers to the straightforward literal meaning or interpretation. For example, Matthew reveals that an angel appeared to Joseph. The Peshet interpretation means that an angel indeed appeared to Joseph. Remez, meaning hint, interprets a text allegorically or philosophically by applying it to a relevant or cultural situation. Jesus, as a rabbi, employed Ramez often in his teachings. One example is in Matthew 21.15. It says, The chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, and they became indignant. Jesus responds in Matthew 21.16 by quoting and applying Psalm 8.2. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? Now, as modern interpreters, we may not initially grasp the meaning of the verse. It makes sense, however, when it is viewed through the lens of rabbinic interpretation. The following phrase in Psalm 8.2 reveals the reason for the children's praise. It says, because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Hence, Jesus interpreted Psalm 8-2 according to the situation at hand, and as such, explained that, the, that by the children praising the Messiah, they were identifying the religious leaders as God's enemies. Duresh, from the term for separating the kernel from the chaff, is a typological or homiletical exposition of a text. A Duresh looks for typological or typological similarities between a text and the current situation. Matthew employs several Duresh interpretations in Matthew 2. In a homiletical exposition, a Duresh is used for teaching morals or explaining the law. Jesus employed Duresh in his Sermon on the Mount. Sod, meaning secret, reveals a mystical or secret meaning in the text. Now, Saad requires understanding Hebrew and the gamatria, or the numerical equivalents of the letters. Matthew employs a Saad in the Messianic Chronicle by dividing the generations into groups of 14. As we learned, the Hebrew term 14, Dawid, is equivalent to the Hebraic name for David, Dawid.
Understanding the Jewish forms of interpretation is critical, especially for us as students of the Scripture, to correctly interpret the prophetical statements of Matthew 2, 13-23. In this final pericope of Matthew 2, three crises are presented. The threat from Herod the Great, the massacre of the innocent, and the threat from Archelaus. Each crisis is presented with the messianic child as the central figure. Hence, Matthew 2, 13-23 presents the messianic crisis. The messianic crisis. Now we're going to begin with chapter 2, verses 13-15. to 15. The first messianic crisis was the threat from Herod the Great. The threat from Herod the Great. Now when they had gone, verse 13, Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, while it was still night, and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what has been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now notice the narrative begins immediately following the departure of the Magi. Now when they had gone, again, what happens? An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. The angel's appearance is his second to Joseph. The first time the angel appeared, he allayed Joseph's fear about taking Mary as his wife. This time... The angel comes with a warning. The warning contains three commands. First, the angel commands Joseph to take the child and his mother. The verb take, paralamano, is a command to lead or guide Mary and the child away from Bethlehem. Notice that Matthew does not refer to Jesus as the child of Joseph. By doing so, Matthew enforces the idea of what? The virgin birth. Matthew consistently places the child before his mother to demonstrate that the focus is always upon the child who is the Messiah. Second, the angel commands him to flee to Egypt. Flee, fugo, means to escape quickly. Joseph leads his family out of Bethlehem and escapes to Egypt. God's providential direction to flee to Egypt is not without reason. During the Babylonian exile, Egypt was a refuge for the Jewish people according to 2 Kings 25-26. By the first century B.C., a large community of displaced Jews had taken up residency in Egypt. In God's providence, he directed the events of history so that a Jewish community was created in Egypt. In doing so, God ensured a respite and hiding place for the Messiah, his mother, and Joseph. The third command, the angel commands Joseph, to remain there until I tell you. The verb remain, ami, means to stay in a particular area. Joseph and his family were to stay in Egypt until the angel commanded them to leave. Now the reason for this threefold command is due to the situation surrounding Herod. The angel explains that Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Now Herod the Great, known for his paranoia, murdered many of his family members he believed wanted to take his throne. The reality was that it was never his throne in the first place. The throne belonged to a Jewish descendant of David. Though Herod's ancestors had converted to Judaism around 200 B.C., 
he was still a descendant of Esau by birth. The birthright of the land of Israel had been given to Esau's brother Jacob. Further, Jacob foretold that the scepter or king of Israel would come through the tribe of Judah. Specifically, that descendant of Judah who would be king would also be the Messiah. Herod was no Messiah. And he had no right to the land nor the throne. Previously in Matthew 2, some truths were revealed about Herod. This perfidious interloper. Verse 3 revealed that Herod was filled with fear and anxiety when he heard the news of the newborn king. Verses 4 through 7 display Herod's craftiness as he plots to learn the place and time of the king's birth. Verse 8 reveals Herod's false reverence as he feliciously claims that he desires to worship the newborn king. And now in Matthew 2.13... His evil intentions are revealed. Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Note that Herod is going to search for the child. The verb search, zeteo, means relentlessly searching for someone or something. Remember, Herod had charged the Magi with searching for the child's location. However, we know from verse 12 that after being warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country another way. So Herod is searching for the child. Why? Because he wants to destroy him. The verb usually translated destroy is alumi. Here the verb apolumi, which is more emphatic than ulumi, is used. It means to demolish, lay waste, and kill utterly. As verses 16 to 18 will demonstrate, the verb apolumi emphasizes Herod's plan to remove the rightful heir to the throne. Joseph heeded the angel's warning. He got up, took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt where they remained until the death of Herod. In turn, Joseph's obedience fulfilled another messianic prophecy spoken by the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt I called my son. In particular, this prophecy is found in Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Now originally Hosea's statement was not a prophecy, but a historical record of God's providential care of leading the Israelites out of Egypt. However, what was initially a historical record took on a prophetical nature. Now how did Matthew arrive at interpreting Hosea 11.1 1 as a prophecy about the Messiah? He did so by employing Duresh. He looked for types or similar symbols between the text and the current situation. Now the thinking behind Matthew's Duresh begins in Matthew 2.7. I will surely tell you of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 2.7 declares Jesus' sonship and relationship to the Father. As well, calling Jesus a son expresses the voluntary submission of the second person to the first person of the Godhead. Also, I want to take an aside here and deal with the Hebrew verb yalad, yalad, translated in Psalm 2.7 as begotten. It is the equivalent of the Hebrew verb gena'o, meaning to bring forth. The phrase, today I have begotten you then, refers to the day 
that God revealed the Son as the Davidic heir who will reign over the whole earth as revealed in the next verse, Psalm 2, 8. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Now according to a Jewish midrash or commentary on Psalm 2, 7, the rabbis equated the son of Psalm 2, 7 with the son of Exodus 4, 22. Exodus 4.22 declares, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. While the son's statements of Exodus 4 and Psalm 2 initially applied to Israel, the rabbis saw them as finding their ultimate fulfillment in the Messiah. So based upon the rabbinic teaching of Psalm 2.7 and Exodus 4.22, Matthew employed his Duresh and interpreted the Son in Hosea 11.1 1, as also applying to the Messiah. Now it must be underscored that Matthew wrote under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Hence his Duresh, or interpretation of the Hosea text, and by default the rabbinic interpretation of Exodus 4 and Psalm 2 are correct. Undoubtedly his Duresh was also influenced by the Messianic prophecy of Numbers 24, 7 to 8, and Psalm 89, 26 to 27. Numbers 24, 7 and 8 declares, And his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. He is for him like the horns of a wild ox. He will devour the nations who are his adversaries, and will crush their bones in pieces, and shatter them with his arrows. Here Balaam was foretelling the Messiah and his future kingdom. He explicitly revealed that God brings Messiah out of Egypt. Psalm 89, 26-27 declares, He will cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I shall also make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Referring to the Messiah as both son and firstborn in Psalm 89, ties the son of Psalm 2-7 to the firstborn of Exodus 4-22. My friends, God providentially sent the Messiah to Egypt to bring him out of Egypt. In the same way that God brought Israel out of Egypt and initiated a marriage covenant with them, so he brought the Messiah out of Egypt to initiate a new marriage covenant. A covenant that involves saving his people from their sin. Indeed, the messianic crisis surrounding the threat of Herod set the stage for the institution of the new covenant, which will ultimately be instituted through the shed blood and death of the Messiah. Let's move on to verses 16 to 18. And here we have the second messianic crisis, the massacre of the innocent. The second messianic crisis was the massacre of the innocent, verse 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinities from two years old and under, according to the time which had been determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because there were no more. Now Matthew notes here that Herod soon realized that he had been tricked by the Magi. That verb tricked, empizo, means be, to be embarrassingly deceived and becoming the source of ridicule. It should be noted and emphasized. This is Herod's viewpoint. At no time did the Magi deceive Herod. 
They had full intention of returning to Herod to report the child's location. However, God revealed to them Herod's less than altruistic reasons, and so they returned to Babylon without ever reporting to Herod. Now the text says that Herod became very enraged, believing himself slighted by the Magi. The thrust of enraged Thumao is to be so angry as not to be able to think. Already paranoid, and now so angry that he cannot think rationally, Herod sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years of old and under. Every Jewish boy under the age of two residing in and around Bethlehem was murdered. Now the choice to massacre all the male children two years old and younger was according to the time which he had determined for the Magi. Now the age limit does not indicate that Jesus was two years old when Herod murdered these infants. Again, according to Ezra 7, 9, the 900-mile journey from Babylon to Jerusalem takes about three and a half months. Conservatively, if the Magi left Babylon around the star's first appearance, they would have arrived in Jerusalem approximately four to six months after the birth. Herod murdering all children under two years of age provided a margin of error for him if the Magi's calculations were off. Now, there are some who will refute or question the legitimacy of Matthew's record here, claiming that the massacre did not happen because there's no historical reference to it. However, one must remember that Bethlehem was a little town. There were likely only 20 or so children under the age of two in Bethlehem and the surrounding region. As such, the massacre represented a minor incident in the great scope of Herod's exploits. Herod's massacre of the innocents was the first of many attacks brought against the Messiah by Satan. You see, my friends, Satan's goal was to end the Messiah's life before he could give his life in redeeming love on the cross of Calvary. And as such, pagan Herod was a tool in the hand of Satan. Though Satan's tool, he was still responsible before God for his actions. I would like you to consider for a moment that Herod committed five infractions against the Torah, against the law. Herod broke the first commandment to have no other gods before the true God by refusing to worship the child. He disregarded God's threat to visit the father's sin on their children to the third and fourth generation. Herod broke the sixth commandment, prohibiting murder, when he killed the children of Bethlehem. He broke the ninth commandment, prohibiting the bearing of false witness, by claiming that one of the children plotted to remove him from the throne. And he broke the tenth commandment, prohibiting coveting, as he coveted with bloody hands the power and glory which truly belonged to the Messiah. Again, Matthew demonstrates how these events fulfill messianic prophecy. In particular, he quotes the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Specifically, the prophecy comes from Jeremiah 31, 15. Jeremiah's statement relates to the grief of mothers felt over the exile of their sons to Babylon in 586 B.C. Thus, the statement was originally historical. Matthew, however, uses a derash to interpret the statement prophetically 
to refer to the situation surrounding the Messiah. Now, Ramah was a city in Benjamin, located between Gibeah and Bethel, a few miles north of Jerusalem, ten miles north of Bethlehem. According to Jeremiah 40, verse 1, the Jewish exiles, including Jeremiah, were imprisoned at Ramah before their deportation to Babylon. While in Ramah, Jeremiah hears a voice or noise that, def that he defines as weeping and great mourning. Then he sees to whom the voice belongs, Rachel weeping for her children. Rachel, the wife of Jacob and mother of Benjamin, is standing before Jeremiah, resurrected and in distress over her people. It is no coincidence that Rachel would be there to mourn, as she is the mother of the tribe of Benjamin, in which Ramah was located. Matthew applies this historical event to the heartache and distress experienced by the mothers in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas over the murder of their children. Just as Rachel could not be comforted, these mothers found no comfort. The messianic crisis involving the massacre of the innocents demonstrates the depths that Satan will go in his attempt to thwart the Messiah's mission to save his people. Nonetheless, God is more powerful and thwarted Satan's insidious plan. Nonetheless, what about the children who were lost? Though Stephen is viewed as the first person martyred because of the Messiah... Were not these children also martyrs? Did they not die in the Messiah's place? Indeed, these children laid down their lives for the Messiah they never saw. Where are these children today? It can be stated confidently based upon King David's words that these children are in heaven. You see, after the death of his first child with Bathsheba, David declared in 2 Samuel 12, 23, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David's point was that he would again see his child, yet not in this life. When David died, he went to a place called Paradise, the abode of righteous souls before the Messiah's death for humanity's sin. Once the Messiah resurrected, those righteous souls were taken to heaven. Today, when a righteous person dies, their soul and spirit are immediately taken to heaven. All that to say that when David claimed that he would again see his child, he meant that his child would be in Paradise and ultimately heaven. Nowhere in Scripture does God refute David's declaration. However, several questions are raised. Are children born with a sinful nature? Yes. Every child born has a sinful nature. The only child born without a sinful nature was the Messiah because he was born without the seed of a father. Is not everyone, because of their sin, appointed to damnation? Yes, because all have sinned. All are appointed to damnation in the lake of fire. Is it not the only escape from the penalty of sin found in repentance of sin and of faith in the gospel? Yes, the clear command of Scripture is to repent and believe. How is it then that David could confidently assert that his infant child would be in heaven? David's belief is based upon the doctrine of the age of accountability. This doctrine teaches that those who die before reaching a point to be considered accountable before God are inevitably saved. The scriptural support for this doctrine is found in Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. 
You see, Romans 1.20 establishes that humanity is without excuse because they can see and understand God's attributes, eternal power, and divine nature in the created realm. In other words, for a sinner to stand condemned before God, they must possess the capacity to understand and comprehend who God is. By extension, if they can understand who God is, then they would understand what sin is and why it is abominable to him. Newborns, toddlers, young children cannot comprehend or rationalize who God is and why sin is so damnable. In fact, the ability to rationalize does not develop until around seven years of age. Hence, a child who is not old enough to rationalize cannot be held accountable for their sin. Now, does that undermine all that God has said about sin and damnation? No, it does not undermine it at all. God is both lawgiver and judge. He created the law declaring sin and issues judgment against those who sin. As such, in his mercy and grace, the lawgiver can set aside his law and pass judgment as he determines. David's newborn was not old enough to understand that he was a sinner, nor old enough to repent of that sin and believe the gospel. In an act of mercy and grace, God saved the child and brought him into heaven. That David's statement has nowhere in Scripture been abrogated, means that the age of accountability still stands. You see, my friends, because life begins at conception, the doctrine of the age of accountability also applies to any aborted, miscarried, or stillborn child. Additionally, any person born with cognitive disabilities that prevent them from rationalizing their sin and need of a Savior would be covered by this doctrine. Indeed, God does love the little children. And we need to praise Him for His mercy and grace. Amen? Anyone who has suffered the loss of a child before the age of accountability can find solace and comfort in this doctrine. Additionally, anyone with a child or sibling that is cognitively disabled may also find solace and comfort in this gracious, merciful doctrine. Let's move on to verses 19 to 23. The third messianic crisis was the threat from Archelaus. The threat from Archelaus. Verse 19, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Again, we're dealing with the third messianic crisis, the threat from Archelaus. Matthew begins with when Herod died, indicating that time has passed since the flight to Egypt. Herod's death is historically dated in the spring of 4 B.C. By following the biblical evidence, we can determine how much time has passed between the flight into Egypt and the death of Herod. In John chapter 2, John records that Jesus was in the first year of his ministry. With Herod's temple in the background, Jesus says in John 2.19, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, Jesus is not referring to Herod's temple, but to the temple of his body, which would be resurrected after three days. The Jews misunderstood him and said in verse 20 of John 2, 
It took 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? In other words, Herod's temple had been under construction for 46 years in the first year of Jesus' ministry. Now we know historically construction on Herod's temple began in 20 B.C. and lasted 46 years, placing the first year of Jesus' ministry in A.D. 26. 20 B.C., 26 years, or 46 years, brings us to 26 A.D. According to Luke 3, 21 and 23, Jesus was also baptized when he began his ministry, being about 30 years of age. That he was about 30 gives a plus or minus of one year. Hence, subtracting about 30 years from A.D. 26, one arrives at 5 to 4 B.C. Now, biblical evidence supports that Jesus' birth took place in the fall, not in the winter on December 25th. First, we know from Luke 2, 7, and 8 that the shepherds were out in their fields tending to their sheep when Jesus was born. The month of December in Judea is cold and rainy. The shepherds would have housed their sheep for winter no later than the month of Moxavon, or October, November. Second, based on Luke 1, 23-24, Elizabeth conceived after Zechariah completed his course of ministry. In verse 23, it says there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah while he was performing his priestly service. The division of Abijah indicates that Zacharias' service corresponded to the week of Savan 12 to the 18th or June 13th to 19th. Elizabeth conceives after that week between the end of Savan and the beginning of Tammuz, placing John's birth at the end of Adar or the beginning of Nisan, which would be the equivalent of March. Third, Mary conceived Jesus during the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, according to Luke 1, 24-31. The six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy occurred between the end of Kislev and the beginning of Tibeth, which corresponds to our December. Now, the Festival of Lights, or Hanukkah, begins on Kislev 25 and lasts until Tibeth third. How fitting that Mary conceived the light of the world during the Festival of Lights. Mary conceived at the end of Kislev, placing Jesus' birth in Tishra, or September of the following year. Tishra 15 is the Feast of Tabernacles, celebrating God's dwelling with humanity. Remember that Jesus is called what? Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Furthermore, John 1.14 declares that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. As well, Revelation 21.3 declares, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. That term dwelt in John 1.14 and dwell in Revelation 21.3 translates the Greek verb skeneo, meaning to tabernacle. How fitting, how awesome is it that the Messiah, God in the flesh, God's tabernacle amongst humanity, was born during the Feast of Tabernacle in the fall of 5 B.C. So Jesus was born sometime in Tishra or September of 5 B.C. The Magi visited in Shabbat or January, about four months after his birth. Joseph and his family left for Egypt immediately after the Magi's visit. Herod died in the spring of 4 B.C. More specifically, Josephus records two events around Herod's death, a lunar eclipse before and a Passover after his death. The eclipse took place on March 13th, 4 B.C., 29 days before Passover in Nisan or April. Taking all the available biblical evidence, 
Together we can determine that Joseph, Mary, and the child spent three to four months in Egypt. Now, history tells us that Herod the Great died of a painful internal disease involving worms of which no one has identified the medical cause. Of interest, however, Josephus states in the Antiquities of the Jews that Herod's distemper greatly increased upon him after a severe manner, and this by God's judgment upon him for his sins. It should come as no surprise, believer, that God would judge Herod in such a manner as he was guilty of so many immoralities, not the least of which included the massacre of the innocent and rejection of the Messiah. Similarly, his great-grandson, Herod Agrippa I, also died of worms for taking worship that belonged to Yahweh, Acts 12, 22-23. Now following Herod's death, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For those who have sought the child's life are dead. This is the third appearance of the angel of, to Joseph. This time, the angel gives Joseph two commands. First, Joseph is to take the child and his mother. Again, the verb take, parallelbano, is a command to lead or guide Mary and the child away from Egypt. Second, he commands Joseph to go into the land of Israel. Go, peruamai, implies move to a new location. In this case, that location is Israel. Joseph immediately obeys. Upon getting up, he took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. More than likely, Joseph was going to return to Bethlehem. However, on the way, he receives news that Herod's son, Archelaus, was now on the throne. Archelaus was just as evil as his father. Josephus records that he massacred many Jews in a Passover celebration whom he deemed seditious. In fact, his cruelty was so awful that Caesar Augustus removed him from power in AD 6. Though he was afraid, Joseph did not waver in his obedience to God. What an example to us as believers. God said to go to Israel, and that is where Joseph went. At some point before arriving in Judea, God again warned Joseph in a dream not to go to Judea. Joseph obeyed again and left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. Again, Matthew notes that all these events transpired to fulfill another messianic prophecy. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, the city of Nazareth de derives from the term Nazar or branch. Uniquely, the town of Nazareth can be translated as branch town. Citizens of Nazareth were called Nazarenes or branches. And note that Matthew reveals that this particular prophecy was spoken through the prophets. Again, Matthew is invoking a derash of two particular prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah 11.1 1 states, A shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The term branch, Nazar, is a synonym for the shoot and denotes a branch or descendant from the root. Here the root is Jesse, and the branch is the Messiah. Jeremiah 33.15 states, In those days at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. Jeremiah refers to the Messiah as the branch of David. However, he uses a different but synonymous term for branch. Isaiah uses the term Nazar, whereas Jeremiah uses the term Sema. His choice is significant. When the prophet Nathan announced the terms of the Davidic covenant, David said that God has made an everlasting covenant with me for all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not indeed make it grow, Sema? 
That term grow, Salah, means to sprout a branch. David declared that God would make his descendants sprout like trees. Thus, when Isaiah and Jeremiah refer to the Messiah as sprouting forth as the stem of death, Jesse, or the branch of David, they were proclaiming that the Messiah is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Jesus was called the Nazarene, or the branch, in fulfillment of Isaiah 11.1 1 and Jeremiah 33.15. Indeed, the Messianic crisis surrounding the threat of Archelaus moved the Messiah from Egypt to Nazareth and setting the stage for his Messianic ministry. From Nazareth, Jesus launched a powerful three-and-a-half-year rabbinic ministry that authenticated his Messiahship in word and power. The Messianic crisis concludes Matthew's proofs of Jesus' Messiahship. What was written in Moses and the prophets about the Messiah begins finding fulfillment in Matthew. Questions about the legitimacy of the Messiah's birth and right to the throne are answered. As the descendant of Abraham and David, Jesus the Messiah has the proper lineage to reign. The virgin birth and name Emmanuel confirm it. The star, the city, and the magi certify Jesus' Messiahship. A threefold crisis could not deter it. Instead, they display God's providence in controlling and directing the events surrounding the Messiah's entrance into the world. And so I ask, as we bring this to a close, who do you say that Jesus is? Is Jesus indeed the Messiah? The fulfillment of prophecy. And if he is indeed the Messiah, if he is your Messiah, if he is your Savior, is he also your Lord? It's a package deal. You can't claim him as your Savior without claiming him as your Lord. Friend, if you've never come to that place of accepting Jesus as Messiah and Lord, as Messiah and King, all you simply need to do is repent and believe the gospel. Forsake, confess your sin, and acknowledge that to God. Receive the gospel that Jesus Christ died and shed his blood to pay your sin, was buried and rose again the third day according to the scripture. And when you do that, when you repent and believe, he becomes your Savior and Lord, your Messiah and King. And if that is what he is to you, then my friend, I challenge you to go forth like Joseph and obey him. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, Lord, we come before you giving you the thanks and the praise for what you have made clear in the text of Matthew. That Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the Messiah. He is King. He is Savior. He is Lord. Father, I pray that if someone is listening, Lord, that has never come to that place of salvation, they've never received the Messiah as their, as their Savior, they've, he's never been the King, the Lord of their life. That, Father, I pray that even now they might, in the quietness of their, of their own thoughts, they would confess their sins before you and receive the gospel, believe the gospel that Jesus died, buried, rose again the third day. He covered their sins with his shed blood. Father, I pray that you might give them newness of life, that they might receive the gift of salvation. That Father, I pray for each and every one who confesses, who claims that, yes, Jesus is my Messiah, my King. I pray, Lord, that then we would go forth in obedience to him as our king. That we might follow the example that Joseph set. We pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.